Well, um, it's always a privilege to uh, teach out of God's Word. Um, and although it's only been about 36 hours, like I said earlier, um, I hope that God will still use every last minute of this. Um, and I figure that if God can use a donkey to speak to a prophet, he can use me uh, to hopefully communicate something as well. So, um, In the U.S. News and World Report, 64% of Christians said that they, pay, that they pray once a day. And according to an Ellis Research Survey, the average pastor spends about 30 minutes in prayer a day. A Newsweek poll titled, Is God Listening?, indicated that those that pray 85% of the time believe that God will answer their prayers. And even so, prayers that didn't get answers don't actually deter them from praying again. 85 insisted that they could accept God's failure to grant them their prayers. Only 13 declared 13% declared that they have lost faith because of prayers went unanswered. 82% don't turn away from God even when their prayers go unanswered. And 54% say that when God doesn't answer their prayers, it means it wasn't really God's will to begin with. The things that people pray for include health, safety, jobs, and even success, whether it's valid or not. And 82% said that they asked for health or success for a child or for a family member when they pray. And 82% believe that God does not play favorites when answering prayers. 75% said that God answers prayers for healing someone with an incurable disease. 75% asked for strength to overcome personal weakness. 73% answered that prayers for help in finding a job were answered. And on the lighter side of things, 51% agreed that God doesn't answer prayers in winning sports events. Um, so today we will be reading out of Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. And if you haven't figured out already what today's message is about, then maybe you might need some prayer as well. Anyway, let's bow with me, please. Father God, we thank you so much. For this time to dive into your word, Lord, it's a precious time each and every moment that we can spend with you, Lord. I pray that you would just move me out of the way so that your words can be spoken here today, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So beginning in verse 12, we read, In those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came... He called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, also called Thaddeus, by the way, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. Now we know from Luke 5.16 that Jesus often withdrew himself to lonely places to pray. But what is unique about this passage is that Jesus spent so much time in prayer. If you look at verse 12 of Luke chapter 6, it appears to redundantly mention that Jesus had prayed. In actuality, the use of the second clause indicates that the first was not a routine devotional exercise. 
The use of the phrase praying to God in the second half of the verse comes from the Greek word proseskue, which means a place dedicated to prayer, such as a chapel or oratory or even a mountainside where there might be a, a, a river running by for purification's sake. These locations which, were devout, which devout Jews would retire were places of devotion. Before we can fully understand the meaning behind this sacred event, we need to look at Mark chapter 3 to fill in some gaps in the events that happened between the healing on the Sabbath and his withdrawal to the mountain to pray. But before we go to Mark, hold on a second. Uh, um, Look back one verse to verse 11 in Luke chapter 6, and we see that the Pharisees, they were furious and enraged and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So let's take a look um, in, in a little bit more detail at what Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 6, says. It's, this event describes even in more detail what happened. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So unlike... Luke chapter 6, which just talks about their rage and being filled and and beginning to discuss with one another, Mark goes into more detail about the actual plot to kill Jesus and and whom they were plotting with. Now the Herodians, they were non-religious Jews that weren't associated with any sort of particular religious sect. They were influential backers of the Herodian family and huge supporters of Rome, basically because Rome had instilled them and, uh, and, and had given them authority to rule in that area. And so these Herodians were, were joining forces with the Pharisees because of the potential political unrest that Jesus was causing in the region. Now, we know that Jesus knew about this because in Matthew twelve fifteen it says, being aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. And so after leaving the Pharisees in Capernaum, Jesus went to the lake of Gennesaret. Only the book of Mark tells us details of Jesus requesting a boat from his disciples so that he might distance himself from the crowd. Now, it doesn't really seem like a Jesus thing to do, right? But why would Jesus do this? If you want to picture what Jesus might have felt like, imagine Black Friday with no doors, no mall cops, And you are the Tickle Me Elmo doll or the flat screen TV. And everyone wants you, but for all the wrong reasons. By preaching in a boat from the shore, Jesus was able to place more emphasis on his teachings and not just ability to heal heal the sick and crippled. We know this by the ways in which they were pressing in to touch him, as it says in the scriptures. Now we know he still had mercy on the sick because he healed many but they were treating him more like a miracle worker at this point. Now, I'm not sure that we're all that different. How many of us treat God like a vending machine? Insert prayer, make selection, and hope that the good and plenty doesn't get stuck on the way down. Fortunately, that's not how prayer works. Prayer begins with the humility and stillness in one's heart. Prayer is an act of humility, a turning over of oneself and our will. 
we tend to want to make the unmistakable, we, we tend to want the unmistakable answer. We tend to look for God to answer us loud and clear. Yet our lives are probably more like Elijah's, where we don't find God in the profound and the obvious. And so in, in 1 Kings, the Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand by the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after then came a fire, and then a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went and stood at the mouth of the cave. Are we expecting to God show up in only the big and powerful ways or in a gentle whisper? If all we do is complain to him, then the noises that we make might even drown out a whisper coming from him that has been there all along. Pulling, so, so now looking back now on verse 12 in, in Luke chapter 6, we see that just as, this is Jesus' second retreat to the wilderness. The first one being an escape from the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now from the crowds and even his disciples. Of all the Gospels, Luke is the only one that mentions Jesus praying all night. Now, I don't know about you, but an all-nighter usually means serious business. Due to the circumstances of a threatening atmosphere coming from the Pharisees and the Herodians, in the important selection of the twelve, Jesus forsook physical rest in exchange for petitioning his mental and spiritual needs to the Father. How many of you have stayed up all night? How many of you guys have stayed up all night because of prayer and, and prayed the whole night? One. I commend you, brother. I haven't done that. I've never done that. But I have had my shares of all-nighters. I recall in college when I would scramble the night before to get design models built and drawings and, and getting these things complete for the next day's presentations. But in those instances, I had coffee and Red Bull and pizza and junk food and fellow students to really keep me awake. But in the case of Jesus, he stayed up all night, not for any personal gain, not because he'd been procrastinating, but because he knew the time had come for some eternally important decisions to be made. With the growing crowds arriving in Judea, Jerusalem, and the regions beyond the Jordan, it was necessary that he implement his succession planning and delegation of duties. Again, in Mark 3:14, we see Jesus' selection of the twelve was so that he might disciple them further and that he might send them out to preach and have the authority to drive out demons. As Jesus sought wisdom, discernment, and direction from the Father, he was essentially entering a point of no return in his ministry. He knew that included among the twelve, one hand, one, there, there needed to be one to hand him over to be crucified. You see, Jesus' betrayal had to be an inside job. As popular as Jesus was, the authorities knew that it would be disastrous to seize him with a lot of people around and people that would rush in to his aid. They needed to know when and where he would be relatively alone. And Judas was the man to give them this insider information. Now imagine Jesus sifting through each and every one of his many disciples, discerning their hearts, their intentions, 
these men were to become great importance to the work of the kingdom and were to assist and succeed him in his ministerial work. Now God's word tells us that we are to pray without ceasing. And as mentioned earlier, we see that Jesus even selected specific locations for prayer. This example shows us the importance of setting aside a dedicated prayer time and possibly even a dedicated place to pray that we consider sacred. Now, growing up, my parents had this great idea to, to, to get the family to pray more. And so they bought these little red sticker dots. And we were, they were supposed to remind us that every single time we saw them, we were to pray. And so I recall putting these dots and seeing them on watches and light switches, speedometers, uh, oven dials, you name it. It was everywhere. <laughs> And this constant reminder to pray in some regard shows us how often we weren't actually praying. I remember getting home from school and realizing that I hadn't even prayed that entire day. Needless to say, you won't find red dots over at my house, but I'm sure you will find a few lying around my folks' place still. Another prayer routine that I've become accustomed to lately is committing my first moments of the day to the Lord. As soon as I wake up, I ask God to speak to me as I'm laying in bed so that I might be used for his own glory. I lay there in the dark, in the silence, before the busyness of text messages and emails, and I listen to the Spirit speak to my heart. Sometimes the thought is to text a friend and encourage them, or to take one of my kids on a walk. Um, Regardless, when I listen in prayer, I'm opening myself up to be filled with the Spirit. Ultimately, God wants us to submit our will and his and, and our desires to him, and this is the way. This is one way that I found that actually works. Every day we are faced with making decisions. So, in an attempt to simplify the process of being in God's will, I've tried to apply some principles that I've learned along the way, specifically from a former pastor of mine. The following are four criteria that we can possibly implement while making decisions, so that we might confidently know that we are in the will of God. Number one, don't sin. If we are contemplating a decision where there's a possibility that the outcome would result in sin, then be rest assured that is not God's will. Likewise, if our prayer requests are a sinful one, you can forget about that too. Any decision we make needs to align with God's word and his purpose for our life. So this means that you don't actually have to pray whether or not you should divorce your spouse. Okay? And that's because we know it's a sin. The word tells us that it would be outside of God's will because what God has brought together, we are not to separate. We also don't need to pray for yachts in the Caribbean because I'm guessing that would be 99% of the time a pretty selfish request. Also, let's not forget the sin of omission. You don't need to pray to ask God whether or not you need to go up to a person on the street and tell them about Jesus. If the Lord is prompting you to talk to someone about Jesus, then just do it, as Nike says, right? We don't need to pray about it. Are you really expecting to hear the Spirit tell you, nah, don't talk to that person about Christ? Probably not. Now, I'm recently guilty of this. Uh, Our whole family happened to be waiting at Les Schwab to see if the mechanic had time to fix a broken wheel bearing when a pair of Mormons walked in. 
Immediately, my family turns to me and asks if I was going to approach them to begin a conversation on my favorite topics to discuss with Mormons, which are the nature of the Trinity, God's plan for salvation, subjective nature of feelings, and things like that. Um, And on any other day, I would have probably jumped at the opportunity. But it had already been a long day, and so I said to them, I said, if the mechanic ends up being able to fix the van and we're going to be here for a while, then I'll go talk to them. Well, that didn't, that didn't end up happening, so um, guilty of sin of omission right here. Okay? So it's important to know what we're up against. Otherwise, we won't be able to identify the attacks. The world, our flesh, and the devil, and his minions are always recognizing opportunities to attack Christians, but Christians do not always recognize these evil attacks. I'm going to say that again. The world, the flesh, and the devil, and his minions always recognize opportunities to attack Christians, but Christians do not always recognize these evil attacks. Therefore, we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, know what the Bible says, and continue to pray as we raise up our shield of faith. Number two, consider your options. Later on in this chapter, Luke references that Jesus had a large crowd of disciples. So on that night, when Jesus went up to the mountain, he was possibly carefully and prayerfully considering each and every one of his candidates for apostleship. Certainly, Jesus had some advantages, though. As he prayed, I imagine he was searching each and every heart of his disciples, looking into the future of who they would become, where they would go, and how they might even die. He knew that he was giving them an an incredible responsibility and setting them up for a life of persecution and trials. So much of what Christians focus on is on their past. Unfortunately, if you look at your past long enough, you're going to get depressed. A former pastor of mine once told me that our relationship with Jesus is like a conductor in his train. The engine represents Jesus. He is our locomotive and the driving force in our life. Our thoughts and our feelings represent the coal car, and the caboose and the other cars represent the past. Now, if we, the conductor of the train, shovel coal into the engine of the train, what happens? The train goes forward, right? We power the train. But if we shovel coal behind us into the caboose, or we don't shovel at all, then what happens? The train doesn't go anywhere. And if you're on a hill, maybe you go backwards, right? In the same way, if we place our focus and cast our burdens and our emotions on Christ, then he carries us forward and pulls us up those hills that we struggle with. But if we turn around and place our focus on the past and our feelings, we lose steam and lose ground. Therefore, our decisions need to be forward-focused and Christ-centered. Everything that we do will bring either reward or regret. As you consider your options, be sure to weigh them against the benefits that they have in this life compared to the benefits that they will have in the next. Number three, commit. It says in verse 13, When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he assigned apostles. The sun came up, Jesus was ready, He chose 12 individuals to be his apostles. 
Jesus set aside dedicated time to pray with a goal in mind, the coming day in the morning light that would signal his final selection. Now, can you imagine Jesus coming back down and saying, you know, man, I've slept, you know, I haven't slept all night, I've been praying, but you know what? Um, got nothing for you. So here we see that Jesus gives us an example of faith and committing to the decisions and to the time that God has given us. There was no hesitation because he had brought his concerns to the Father. He trusted the Father because of the intimate relationship they had. And so therefore, prayer and decisions should go hand in hand. It's like peas and carrots, right? As we listen to those around us express concerns about making difficult decisions, the first thing we should do is to encourage one another to pray. And when we say we are going to do something, we need to follow through. Christ is the prime example of 100% commitment and follow through. When we are faced with these decisions and have dedicated time and prayer, then when the sun begins to rise on that day, we need to make a decision and commit to it. As it says in James 1, 5-6, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed in the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, verse 7 says. Such a person is double-minded, unstable in all that they do. So let us strive to walk in faith, committed and confident in our decisions. Number four, be consistent. As soon as Christ had made up his mind, he carried that decision all the way to the end. We see that throughout the Gospels, the same 12 apostles who Christ selected, in which he came down to the mountain and chose, remained unchanged. He didn't ditch Peter when he was impetuous and had insert foot and mouth disease and denied Christ three times. He didn't reassign new apostles after his resurrection despite the fact that they had fallen asleep in the garden and had, ridden, and, and had ran away and hid when he was arrested. Now, I'm not saying that everything is set in stone, but those things that we know to be true and right should be permanent, whereas we will have opportunities in other areas of our life to adjust decisions based on life circumstances. Now, what we can learn from this is that Christ did remain consistent after he had made a decision, and we can learn a lot from his faithfulness, diligence, and dedication. Even if that means being betrayed and crucified and abandoned by those who were closest to him. Now, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. The Bible is clear about the distinction between apostles and disciples. The disciples up to this time were a group of followers interested in attaching themselves to Jesus and his followings and his teachings. And so, from among them, Jesus selected 12 who would later go out and preach and cast out demons, having the authority sent directly from Jesus. And we know that all but one of Jesus' disciples finished the race well. We have limited accounts to their latter lives, and the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about them, 
But the stories that we hear and the traditions and the histories are pretty consistent in terms of their accounts. Peter, for example, was martyred in Rome about 66 AD during the persecution under uh, Nero. He was crucified upside down at his request since he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner that our Lord did. This also must have actually prolonged his life on the cross since this would allow him to actually breathe with less resistance. So when folks were crucified on the cross, they actually had to push themselves up to get a breath. Well, if you're crucified upside down, you have no need to actually push yourself up because you're already in that down position. So you can actually breathe for a lot longer and with hardly any resistance at all. So that would have meant that Peter knowingly chose to suffer even more for Christ because he didn't even find himself worthy to die in the same manner. Andrew, it is said that he went into the land of the man-eaters, which is now what is uh, considered Russia or the former Soviet Union. Is there a correlation there? I don't know. Maybe not. Anyway, uh, Christians their claim that he brought the first gospel to their land. He also preached in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and in Asia. And there he was said to have been crucified. Thomas the Doubter was probably the most active in the areas of Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India, where the ancient Maranatha Christians revere him as his founder. They claim that he died when he was pierced with four spears from soldiers. Supposedly, if you go to this town in India, you can still find Thomas's gravestone there in India. Philip possibly had a powerful ministry in Carthage, which is in North uh, Africa, and then also in Asia Minor, where he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul. And in retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and then cruelty put to de- cruelly put to death. Matthew, the tax collector and the writer of a gospel, he ministered in Persia and also in Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports say that he was not martyred, but many, many historians agree that he was actually stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew had a widespread ministry, and travels were attributed to him all the way to India with Thomas, back to Armenia, and also to Ethiopia and southern Arabia. There are various accounts into how he met his death, but we know that he was, just, he was martyred for the gospel. No one really knows why or how. James, the son of Alphaeus, is one of the least of the three James referred to in the New Testament. Now, there's some confusion as to um, which one this is, but James is reckoned to have ministered in Syria as well. The Jewish historian Josephus reported that he was stoned and then later clubbed to death. Have you guys seen the, the pattern here? Simon the Zealot, so the story goes, ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Judas, the son of James, also known as Thaddeus, is one of the more, more obscure apostles. We don't know a whole lot about him, but the little that we know about him was that uh, in the New Testament, the records uh, the New Testament records a story involving Judas and his question with Jesus during a message 
um, with his disciples over the Last Supper. Um, we do know that he died a martyr's death, but where and how, we also don't know. Just tradition has been passed down. James, 15 years after hearing the call of the Lord upon the shores of Galilee, James was killed under the rule of King Agrippa. Now, uh, this is the only account that we actually have in the Bible of, of one of the apostles actually dying. Uh, and it says here in Acts, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand and vexed certainty of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And that's in Acts uh, 12, 1 through 2. The martyrdom of James is the only biblical account, like I said, we have. John is the only one of the contemporary generally have thought to have died of, of natural causes in old age. He was the leader of the church in Ephesus and is said to have taken care of mother, uh, Jesus' the, um, Jesus's mother Mary in his own home. John was also then banished to the island of Patmos after, being survived, uh, after surviving um, being thrown into boiling oil. Um, I bet that left some, some serious scars. Um, but then on that desolate island, John received visions of the future and, and obviously the words of the Lord to the seven churches in Revelation. Um, some historians believe that John later uh, was released from Patmos and was able to go back to Ephesus, though there's some discrepancies with that as, as well. Um, today, we have no apostles. Yet we are all disciples if we meet the criteria of a disciple. A person who wants to be a disciple of Jesus can be truly said a disciple if we follow him and if we have made a radical decision to deny oneself. This denial includes submission to God's will within a Christian's prayer life as well. To, to, to deny oneself and take up the cross daily means that we set aside our own desires and submit completely to God's will. In the days of the Roman occupation, a condemned criminal was forced to carry one bar of his cross to the place of his execution. We too are on a one-way journey. And so to speak, we also live each day not for self, but for Christ. As believers, we have been commissioned not only to be fishers of men, but disciple-makers. 2 Timothy 2.2 2 says, The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Just as Christ carefully selected his 12 apostles, we have been given a great responsibility as Christians to carefully entrust our time and devotion. This doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't freely teach those that are willing to listen, but what it does mean is that when we teach, we teach for the purpose of making future disciple-makers who will be faithful men and women committed to teach others also. That is, is, is essentially what 2 Timothy is saying. That we find faithful brothers and sisters, we commit to teaching them for the purpose of making them disciple-makers. The Christian faith is not about addition. The Christian faith is about multiplication. 
and exponential multiplication. Back in 2003, I climbed and summited Mount Baker. The day of the final ascent, we left the summit about 2 a.m. in the morning, and needless to say, it was still pitch dark. Those of us on the team were all roped up together, and as we ascended, our lead climber used a long pole to probe for crevasses and leave flags in the snow for us to follow. One wrong, one wrong move and our entire team could have ended up at the bottom of a 100-foot crevasse. Our relationship as disciples of Jesus is similar to a group of climbers ascending a mountain at night. Jesus is our lead climber. He is looking out for our good and our well-being despite the challenges that we face on our uphill climb. As long as we hold on to Christ's rope, we remain in his will and are guided through life circumstances. A healthy prayer life is one of submission to the will of God. We pray because we humbly acknowledge that we, walk, we cannot walk this life alone. We pray even when we know that the outcome of a negative life circumstance because we know we need the strength to get through it. We pray because prayer is the precursor to decisions. We pray because prayer is a heart-to-heart fellowship and communion with God. I'd like to close with a comment by Charles Ryrie. And he once wrote, Prayer involves five requirements. Number one, a realization that one is asking from a superior. Number two, the realization of a personal need. Number three, the presence of, of, of a working faith in the life of the one who prays. Number four, complete unselfishness on the part of the petitioner. And finally, number five, asking on the basis of promises and faith without doubting or disputing with oneself. If anyone lacks any one of these requirements, it would constitute a hindrance to prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you honoring you as as King and Lord of our lives, Father. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, down to this earth to die for us, Lord. We thank you for your Son who took the time to stay up all night and pray, Lord, and carefully consider and commit and make decisions, Lord, that would glorify you, Father. We pray that as we go out this week, Lord, that we would empty ourselves, deny ourselves, carry our cross, Father, and seek you as we make decisions, Father. Father, we pray for our, our faithful leader, Lord, our pastor. We pray for his speedy recovery, Lord. We love him dearly, Lord. We thank you so much for this congregation and this body and the privilege it is to dive into your word. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.